or the progress of the apostolic church, right, like the church in all ages, faces many obstacles, many enemies. And in the book of Acts to this point, we've seen the church opposed from without, right, by persecution, by arrest, by imprisonment, by beatings, by threats. We've seen the church opposed from within by the deceit and the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. And today, in Acts chapter 6, which is our text, in Acts chapter 6, we see yet another internal threat. Right? One which has perhaps ruined more churches than any outward hostility. Namely, squabbling, grumbling, and an accompanying evil, which is distraction. So we'll make three points. They're there in your bulletin on the outline. The problem, the solution, the result. The problem, the solution, and the result. So a problem arises. So again, we're in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And it tells us, notice this, it's a time when the disciples are increasing in number. Right? The arrest, the imprisonment, the beating of the apostles doesn't stop the word of God. God gathers his people in. Right? The word goes forth. The, the disciples are increasing in number, so it's a great blessing. It's a joy. But it has its pitfalls right, and its challenges because rapid growth here has to be assimilated. It has to be managed some way. Or at least you can say the rapid growth triggers or exposes a problem. So you've got this growing church, and in the midst of this increase in numbers, a complaint happens. It's made by the Hellenists against the Hebrews, we're told, in the text. So it's a dispute between these first century Jewish Christians. The Hellenists would be Greek-speaking Jews, Jewish believers. The Hebrews would be Hebrew or perhaps Aramaic-speaking Jewish believers, now, they both reside in Palestine, right? They're both Christian people at this point. But there would be real language barriers, linguistic barriers, and perhaps some cultural differences. So the text says a complaint arose. And the, and the word for complaint, it's not a neutral word here, right? It entails grumbling and murmuring. It's related to the word used in the Greek Old Testament for Israel grumbling and complaining against Moses. And grumbling and murmuring, these things are corrosive and they're a threat to the well-being of the church. Every bit as much, perhaps more, as I said, than being arrested by the Sanhedrin. We are to do all things without grumbling or complaining, the Apostle Paul says. All things. And, and very relevant, I think, to the situation in our text, Peter says, show hospitality to one another. And this is a hospitality text in one way. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Which is not to say that the complaint is illegitimate. There's a real, it's not. There's a real issue that needs to be addressed. And there are ways to address these things well, with humility and patience and gentleness. And then there are ways to address these things by murmuring, by complaining. 
But in any event, the problem is legitimate. It's a real problem on the ground in the church in Jerusalem. The widows, and remember, Yahweh has directed us to care for the widows across a plethora of Old Testament texts. He deeply, deeply cares about the widows, right? James says, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. To care for widows and orphans in their distress. To keep yourself unstained by the world. So this is not a peripheral issue. It's at the heart of Christian piety. So the Hellenistic widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. Now this, it's easy to understand how this would happen, right? Because the vast majority of disciples would be Hebrews. They would speak either Hebrew or Aramaic. They wouldn't be Hellenists. And so, again, for reasons of, like, language or local custom, you know, we know these widows, but we don't know these widows as well, familiarity. It's easy to see the Hebrew widows getting attended to, right, before the minority Hellenistic widows get their distribution. It would happen almost naturally if you're not paying attention. So I know it seems somewhat mundane, but it's an administrative problem where equity and impartiality need to be restored. Now, we've already seen in Acts, right, that the apostles were receiving the proceeds from the sale of lands and the sale of goods. And they needed to ensure that these proceeds, and it looks like in this case the proceeds were converted to food, right? They need to make sure that this stuff is equitably and fairly distributed to now thousands of people. So, notice in the text the words daily distribution. It's actually daily ministry. The word for distribution is ministry. And so you already have a daily food ministry in place. So it's like a corporate hospitality text. It's like having a daily fellowship meal for a couple thousand people. So you can imagine the logistics of it. They're not easy. And the word for daily ministry is related to our word for deacon. And there are other deacon-like words and concepts in the text. So sometimes this text is viewed as the institution of the office of the deacon. However, the men who are set apart here are never actually called deacons. Right? But because of the words used, because of the service they render, right? because there's a public formal laying on of the hands, we could say that what we have here, at least if it's not the institution of the office of deacon, it at least anticipates that. It anticipates the establishment of the office of deacon. So for now we have a problem. It's a problem in the daily diacona, the daily deaconing. So that's the problem. Here's the solution, our second point. The twelve, right, the apostles, they gather the community together and they say this. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Which is quite remarkable. It appears that they not only oversaw the the reception of all these funds, the apostles but that they were doing the daily distribution, right? The apostles were serving tables. And they say, this is not right. We might think, that's fairly fantastic. Look at the apostles. They're serving tables like the rest of us. But the apostles say, this is not right. They realize there is a deeper issue here, one of order and proportion. They see a threat to the church's well-being. An ethical disorder. It is not right. 
And it's not that waiting tables is beneath their dignity or anything like that. That's not what's going on here. It's that they have a calling. They have a vocation. Which is so demanding that the gifts and callings of others with different vocations should be used for this task. This task of waiting tables. Right? And when it says serve here, serve tables, that's also a deacon word. Right? It's a noble thing to serve tables, to wait the tables. It's a thing of high dignity, but the apostles have a different task. So, both the ministry of tables and the ministry of the word are needed in the church. You could almost reduce everything we need to do to these two things. Right? Preach the word, fellowship with the saints. Luther said the Reformation succeeded in Europe. He said, I didn't do anything. It succeeded while I was sleeping. He said, I, I, then when they pressed him, he said, well, I did, I did two things. I preached the word and I ate and drank with the saints. That's it. I preached the word. I ate and drank with the saints. Do those two things. The church will be fine. You need both. Right? We need both. We need the ministry of tables. We need the ministry of the word. So the apostles make a proposal. They say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. They should be well thought of inside and perhaps outside the community, as in the case of deacons. So what other people think about us in the body of Christ matters. It can prohibit us from holding office or serving. So they are to be of good repute. They are to have a good reputation. And then they say, they, the apostles say, let them be full of the Spirit. Because right? the Spirit is God himself coming, flooding the men in view here with the divine life, with the heavenly life. These are to be men who are full of the divine glory. They are to be spiritual men who combine spiritual thoughts, right? Thoughts wrought by the Spirit with spiritual words. And on top of that, they are to be practical men, right? Skilled men. They're to be full of the Spirit and, the text says, notice this, Wisdom. And wisdom here does not mean they're like some sort of a sage from the East or something. The word for wisdom here means skill. It's roughly the equivalent of prudence and skill. These are to be people who can get stuff done. Right? They can do things. They can administer things. They can do them well. They can use their... Common sense, their gumption, right? They have that kind of skill, and they can do it for the glory of God. Right? The deacons we have and have had at Westminster are just such men. And I hope you do appreciate and thank God for them. We have been richly blessed across the years with deacons. So, pick these seven men out with these qualifications and appoint them to this duty. I want you to notice a couple things about this procedure. This might not be the type of thing we normally stop and see, but we're Presbyterians here, and I want you to see a few of these things. Because what happens here has features very similar to Presbyterian order. It's not identical, but there's like a family likeness. You have the apostles who are like a college, right? They are a, a, a board, if you will, of elders who lead the church. And there's multiple churches involved by this time, multiple house churches. The disciples are now a large number, right? 
But the disciples have a voice here. Right? Nobody runs roughshod over them. There's a democratic element. The apostles don't come in and say, look, we're going to impose this solution on the daily widow problem. They invite the deliberation of the community. In fact, the phrase, pick out from among you, implies a public selection process. Right? Something that's not out of accord with nominations and an election. So there's this democratic element underneath this college of apostles, but it's not purely democratic. Right? Power does not finally reside with the congregation. The apostles set the terms of the selection. And the freedom of the congregation is bounded by the college of the apostles and their authority. Because they say this. Here's the criteria. Pick men. right? So there to be men. Pick seven. Notice that. The apostles give them the number. Don't pick six. Don't pick eight. Pick seven. And then these are the qualifications. They're to be filled with the spirit and wisdom. You select them. And then we... Functioning much like a presbytery, we will appoint them. There's a marvelous balance here. And clearly this is kind of like a middle way between top-down government, you know, where the bishop just says, hey, here's your seven deacons. I just appointed them. And bottoms-up congregationalism. So it's a proposed solution from the apostles, not an imposed solution. And the whole reason for this Remember now, to bring us back, the whole reason for it is in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Right? The word which has already been mentioned, to it is added prayer. Because preaching needs prayer. Because the word needs to be accompanied by the power and light of the spirit. By the blessing of God from heaven. For the word is often opposed. It is foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. And the word here is, notice this, a ministry. The ministry of the word, they say. That's also the word for deacons, a diakona. There's a deaconing of tables. There's a deaconing of the word. There's a serving of tables. There's a serving of the word. And the church, as I said, needs them both. And then we're told this. What the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. This is, it, it, that's a form of consent. It pleased the whole gathering. They consented to it. And then they put the proposal into effect. They chose, the text says, and that word is the same word used in Acts 14 for electing. They elected. Again, this looks like an early congregational meeting with an election that's overseen by the regional church authorities. They chose a man named Stephen, who will become the dominant figure in the book for the next two chapters. Who, it turns out, can not only wait tables, Stephen, but he can preach and teach and rehearse the whole history of Israel in public. And he'll become the first Christian martyr. And they chose another guy named Philip, right, who also will become prominent. He will go down and preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. You know what Luke tells us, just as an aside, later in Acts, a few years after this, in Acts 21? He says, I spent a whole bunch of time in Caesarea at Philip's house. So he may, Luke may have even gotten this story from Philip firsthand. Because a few years after the events, Luke spent time with Philip. Notice this about the people they chose. All seven names listed there are Greek names. Right? 
which means they're probably all from the Hellenists, not the Hebrews. And this makes sense, right? The complaint was raised by the Hellenists, so the church selects Hellenists to address the problem. If you're going to complain, you should be willing to be part of the solution. The Hellenists complain, the church appoints seven Hellenists to make sure any, any ambiguity, any impartiality that's missing is rectified. So they set them before the apostles, they prayed, they laid their hands on them, they commissioned them, and they authorized them for this public ministry. That's how important taking care of widows is in the early church. Finally, then, our third point is the result. Verse 7. Marvelous. This is the result of caring properly for the table ministry. The word of God continued to increase. This is the third time the word of God has been mentioned in seven verses. It's not right to give up preaching the word of God. That's the first time. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. That's the third, second time. And the word of God continues to increase. So this admin problem, right? Fix the distribution problem for the widows. It results in the word going forth and increasing. Notice that Luke personifies the word here, right? Of course, he means the church, which is a creature of the word, grew and increased. A great number of disciples. The number of disciples greatly multiplied in Jerusalem, he says, and even many priests. And we know how hostile the the elite Sanhedrin priests are. But nevertheless, many priests became obedient to the faith. So the word, growing and multiplying, going forth, this is the chief thing in our text. And let us recall that the chief threat here is distraction. The apostles cannot be distracted from the word. They have to focus. It's a disorder having apostolic men waiting on tables when their vocation is to prayerfully proclaim the word of God. And this is a threat to the church. It's what I would call an order and proportion problem. Why? Because the word is the very life of the church. And they are to be, as they themselves say, devoted. right? Not intermittently attached to but perpetually fixed and devoted to the word and to prayer and to the ministry of the gospel. And so the devotion that the apostles need cannot be adulterated. Think of this now. It cannot be adulterated by other tasks, no matter how noble and honorable those other tasks might be. It's a remarkable sentiment. We have a plague of this today, I think. Distracted, scattered ministers, right? Pontificating on everything. Ministers have to be focused. They have to be devoted. I heard um, an an interview, a little snippet of an interview with Tim Keller, who just recently died. And uh, after he got a stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis, he said, you know, this is a guy who's responsible for planting hundreds of churches around the world. Most people would not think of him as distracted. He said, the Lord basically told me, you might have a couple years to live. You need to be focused. You're too distracted. 
right? In general, this is a problem for all of us, right? We're just scattered all over the place. Ministers especially have this problem because they are called to be singularly devoted to the word. It's to be something of an obsession, right? The word, the word, the word, always, only, ever the word, nothing but the word, right? I'm not devoted to current events or to political commentary or to ideology or to weighing in on every other crisis that appears, right? Ministers are to be devoted to the word. This is to be their holy obsession. And to the extent that we are all ministers, witnesses of the gospel, we need this kind of devotion. And some of it is going to require weeding out distractions. This is, I would like to call this a holy limitation. Right? There's a whole wide array of noble and honorable things, but there has to be a kind of holy limitation, a divine narrowness. Ministers are often encouraged in our circles to read widely. And I think it's a noble and honorable piece of advice. But you know what I tell them privately is read narrowly. Like, like read deeply in the text and the exegesis of the text and the interpretation of the text and the theology of the text and in theology and in the history of theology. And after that, go read your poetry. But don't read widely without reading deeply and narrowly. So, devotion to the word brooks no rivals, not even the honorable task of caring for the widows. Think of that. Remember what Paul says to the the young minister, Timothy? It's remarkable language, right? It's, um, It's military language. He says, no soldier entangles himself in civilian affairs. What an astonishing piece of advice. You're a soldier of Jesus Christ, Timothy. You cannot be entangled in the stuff that other people are entangled in. You cannot get entangled in civilian affairs if you want to please the one who enlisted you. Now, yes, it's unique to Timothy and the office, but it applies in general to all of us. So if waiting on widows, which God requires, is a distraction for these men, what shall we say then? about all the scattered passions that we tend to have. The word, the church, all the reformers called the church the creature of the word. It's the unadulterated word of God which causes the church to increase and grow in spite of suffering and conflict and sin. It's the word of God by which God addresses us. Calvin never ceased to talk about how the fact that God does this in a way to humble us and to test our patience because he speaks his very word to us through the likes of sinful men. He doesn't, Calvin says he doesn't thunder at us from heaven. If he did that, we'd all immediately fall on our faces. There'd be no problems. But he chooses to speak his word to us through unworthy vessels. But nevertheless, it's the word that comes through. And the word, as we heard read, does not return empty. It accomplishes all of God's purposes. It succeeds in what God has sent it for. There's no opposition that can thwart it or chain it. This is the living word. It's the abiding word. It's the imperishable seed by which you have been begotten again. Right? The word is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. 
It's the word alone, Hebrews tells us, which pierces, right? To the division of soul and heart and joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's the word of God which is at work in you for your salvation. This is why the apostles were to give themselves to the hard, laborious work of study, of prayer, of preparation, and then of proclamation. Philip Brooks was a 19th century minister. He wrote the lyrics to O Little Town of Bethlehem, among other things. He speaks of the desire in any profession, really in any profession, for, you know, shortcuts, for some magical, concise prescription, which he says, Brooks says, eliminates the need for careful, comprehensive study. But this disposition, Brooks says, is, quote, nowhere so strong as in the ministry. Ministers love shortcuts. And what ends up happening is they become jacks of all trades and masters of none. Jacks of all trades, masters of none. Here's the problem. The calling, however, requires that they be masters of one trade. Masters of one trade. That's all. Donald Barnhouse, who I mentioned a couple years ago, uh, early 20th century reform minister, pastor of 10th Pres in Philadelphia. Barnhouse said this. No man is ever going to be able to fill the pulpit adequately unless he spends thousands of hours, year after year, in the study of God's Word. Masters of one trade, that's all, and that's enough. The great Samuel Rutherford, the great Scottish Presbyterian, said, Lord knows that I prefer the preaching of Christ to anything except next to Christ himself. Finally, Robert Rayburn is a retired PCA minister. There's a wonderful book called Order in the Offices by a bunch of Orthodox Presbyterians. It came out about 25, 30 years ago, maybe. And uh, I remember reading it, actually. I remember where I was. I remember when it was. It was in the summer of 1998. And I got to Rayburn's essay. This was at a time when I was starting to maybe prepare for the ministry. I wasn't sure what God wanted me to do. And when I read this essay, I knew what I wanted to do. And I felt that God had called me through this. And this is rare for me. I actually took a couple paragraphs of this essay, copied them, cut them out, pasted, taped them on the inside of my Bible for many years. I don't know, even know if I still have that Bible. But here's what Rayburn said. He said, It is the work of a lifetime. And the whole work of a lifetime to preach the word of God with the humanity, the earnestness, the accuracy, the insight, and the power which the great subjects of the word and the great issues of a congregation's everlasting salvation requires. He continues, only the man who loves to preach and who lives to preach will be adequate to such a work, demanding as it does the continual cultivation and the full exercise of all his powers. Right? You can't preach at night or on the weekend or slap something together on Saturday 
It's not a part-time job. It's the work of a lifetime and the whole work of a lifetime that demands the continual cultivation and the full exercise of all powers. Now, that's, tr- that's not true of people who are not ministers, but there's an analogy. There's an analogy for all the saints. And this is why the apostles are saying, look, it's wonderful to serve the widows, but we can't be the ones doing it. Because the word of God has to increase, and the word of God has to multiply, and the word of God has to run and be glorified, and the word of God has to gather in the harvest of God. This is the word from which the apostles refused to be deflected. It's the word which causes the church to be, to live, to increase, to multiply. It's the word which causes even the priests in the temple to be obedient to the faith. You may not be a minister, but you have the high privilege of access to this word in ways that other centuries did not. So cleave to it. It is your life. It is your wisdom. It is your hope. It is the power of God unto salvation for you. Because in that word, you encounter the great deacon and the great apostle preacher. right? The one who came not to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen.